This is Phantom Power. Episode 16, Soul and Chill. Hey, I'm Mac Haygood, and yes, you are hearing Calvin Harris on Phantom Power, the podcast on the sonic arts and humanities. Why, you might ask? Well, our guest today spends a lot of time listening to Calvin Harris and David Guetta. She calls them the Coke and Pepsi of pop electronic dance music, or EDM. As a musicologist, she's fascinated by how EDM pushes beyond tonality, that is, the harmonies and chord progressions that are the focus of blues-based rock and pop music. EDM cares more about timbre and rhythmic complexity, ear-catching sounds and intense sonic experiences, moments when the vocal stutters or the beat drops, moments like this one where the entire song begins to soar. But Robin James isn't just a musicologist, she's also a philosopher. She really wants to know what these songs can tell us about society. And while many cultural analyses of pop songs focus on song lyrics with a few vague gestures towards the sound, Robin James brings her musicological experience to bear, connecting musical structures to economic structures, not to mention structural racism and sexism. To my mind, the strength of her work is that she makes admirably bold and clear claims about why certain kinds of popular music are popular in a given moment. And whether or not you decide you agree with those claims by the end of this show, you may never hear an EDM soar quite the same way again. In today's episode, my co-host Chris Cheek and I have a lengthy freeform conversation and listening session with Robin in which she breaks down EDM pop songs featured in her book, Resilience and Melancholy, Pop Music, Feminism, Neoliberalism. We also get into a bit of hip hop, as well as songs from her current research into chill music in the streaming era. Robin James is Associate Professor of Philosophy at UNC Charlotte and co-editor of the Journal of Popular Music Studies. For the 2019-2020 academic year, she is also visiting Associate Professor of Music at Northeastern University. And by the way, she got her start in musicology and philosophy as an undergraduate at Miami University in Ohio, where Chris and I teach. So I started college as an oboe major back in the 90s. And yeah. And you were playing oboe at Miami? Yes. Okay. Um, I was in the. I played piccolo in the marching band. Yeah. Um, I thought I wanted to be a conductor. I was taking philosophy classes, and I realized that sort of the questions that music theorists ask sometimes were similar to the questions that philosophers asked, and that the the questions that I was interested in about music were things like why do people think this sounds good, right? For it to mm. music to go this way as opposed to some other way, right? Or um, why does music sound certain ways in particular socio-historical moments? And those are really philosophical questions about music. Yeah. Um, so then when I was deciding, like, what kind of graduate program do I want to go into? Do I want to go into, like, a musicology program? Do I want to go into a gender studies program? Do I want to go into a philosophy program? I said, well, you know, in philosophy, I can do all of that stuff. So um, in terms of uh good is it that it makes you feel good or is it that it's good in relation to aesthetic standards that one has had brought down to you when you're thinking about music yeah both and often i think the 
the interesting things to think about are when those two are in conflict. Yes. So Khalifa Sana's Poptimism article came out in 2004, and that's when I was writing my dissertation. I finished right. it in 2005. And um, Poptimism um, is the idea that uh, pop music or music traditionally devalued because it's associated with like teen girls is just as worthy of critical and intellectual attention as music that's traditionally received that attention, such as jazz or rock or art music or something like that. So I was, I was writing my dissertation at that time, and part of what I was trying to think about was sort of the conflict between, you know, the elite aesthetic standards and what people like, right? right? So, for example, um, one of the things I did in the dissertation was show how, um, in some ways, Nietzsche was the first poptimist. <laughs> <laughs> with his arguments that Italian opera, because they make you feel good and they're kind of nonsensical and just fun, is better than German opera. So, um, right. so yeah, I was kind of thinking about the instances where what pe what makes people feel good is in conflict with what the elites say is good, capital G. So a kind of, uh, I don't know, low art versus high art would be another way of putting this. Yeah. The, the kind of the things that you feel that you ought to develop an appreciation for uh, because they're held to be culturally icon iconic as, a, as distinct from the thing that you just like. Right. And for me, as a scholar of gender and race, that's interesting because there's those two factors are often deeply, deeply behind the the conflict between the, the sort of critical standards and uh, quote-unquote guilty pleasures, right? Yeah. It seems like a lot of your work is asking, what is it about the social environment that makes certain musical sounds, like you said, feel good, right? Or feel mm -hmm. pertinent, become popular. But then we could also flip that and say, what can the rise of certain musical sounds tell us about our society? Is there a way that musical sounds can can tell us what's actually going on? Yeah, and that's a great way to sort of describe what I try to do, because I think in a lot of ways what I'm interested in is understanding society and relations among people so we can be better at it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. And society is obviously vast and complicated, but pop songs are three minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> so they're much easier to study in, in their completeness. Mm -hmm. yeah. We understand songs because they contain structures that make sense to us as a structure, right? And those structures that we hear in songs also structure things out in the world, right? So gender would be one example. Mm. Um, you know, we, we use gender to organize everything from like what kind of bag, what we call the kind of bag someone carries to bathrooms to you know, all sorts of things. Right. But yeah, we also right. use gender to organize relationships among sounds. Right. And uh, Susan McClary's famous example about, you know, the the cadence or the the song that ends on a strong beat is called masculine. And the song that ends on a weak beat is called feminine because we associate masculinity with strength and femininity with weakness. Mm. Right. So um, I try to find these structures in songs as sort of analogs or microscopic versions of the structures or logics or relationships that we experience macroscopically um, in our relations with each other, with the world, out in society. Yeah. Now, is this a different question from what we might call like a hermeneutics of music? Um, this is maybe where I get all nitpicky philosopher. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, so I would understand hermeneutics to be something um, where you're interpreting a hidden meaning, right? You're revealing something underneath the surface. Yes. And that's one way of understanding meaning, um, like a hidden content, but I don't know that I'm necessarily doing that, right? Like I'm, I'm not finding the, the expressed or hidden meaning so much as trying to figure out how it works yeah. and why does it work this way? Yeah. If that makes sense, right? Yeah. And in that way, I think I'm thinking kind of like a music theorist. Can we have a look at some of the ways in which you 
break these pop songs down to show how they're working and what kind of affect they're producing? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we could start with uh, one musical feature that you have studied, which is the soar. Yeah. So um, the soar is a is a device that I identify as sort of coming from early twenty first century dubstep. <laughs> Then sort of filtering up into the early 2010s top 40, right? Remember the sort of EDM boom? Yeah. It's been around for a while, but it kind of rose to the top of the pop charts and became kind of a, a common language in pop songwriting um, around 2009, 2010. And what it does is it's a way to build and release tension in a song right like like a, to build a climax is what it does so uh what the soar does is it uses rhythmic intensification to uh build the song up to a climax and then release that that tensions you guys have probably heard of zeno's paradox right that's the thing where you go half the distance and then half of that again and then half of that yeah. again and half again down to infinity so that's what the soar kind of does with rhythmic events right like so it'll go from like take like a hand clap from like quarter notes to eighth notes to 16th notes and oftentimes it'll it'll try to um approach the sort of limit of human hearing are going so fast you can't hear distinct events so that's that's kind of what the sore is trying to do right and that's how it creates tension right it's it's acting like it's trying to break the limit of your hearing so this is um a, an example of a sore in an early-ish dubstep song right this is scream sort of most well-known breakout single. So if we're talking kind of the origins of dubstep, this would be uh, recognized as a significant song. Here it is. Listen to the hand claps. See how it just doubled? Yeah. yeah. And there's the drop and the downbeat. All right. Yeah. There no, it is. totally. And uh, and so maybe this will go nowhere as a question, but if you're on the dance floor, what happens? Um, usually that's the moment where there's like everybody sort of takes a breath and then sort of like like when I would be dancing, like you you emphasize that downbeat, right? Like it, the right, sore yeah. makes the next downbeat feel like it's falling harder. Cause that's kind of like the big, the big moment. Sometimes like at festivals, people will scream right. during the drop. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so this is LMFAO's Party Rock Anthem. This is kind of uh, the quintessence of big, dumb, EDM pop of the, the early yes. decade. <laughs> I love this song because it's just fun and loud and um, off the chain, as yeah. one might say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's gonna start now. Uh oh. Here we go. Yep. Yeah. So it's sort of building up to this climactic moment and then releasing the tension on the downbeat. Yeah, totally. 
So in some senses, what the sore is doing is it's replacing dissonance, like harmonic dissonance. So Mm -hmm. like a a blues song or a rock song would build that tension with chord changes. But um, pop chord changes have never been sort of especially central to pop. And this the sore sort of lets them fall entirely sort of to secondary status, right? Because they're not the thing driving the building of, of tension and release. It's really sort of rhythmic and timbral instead of harmonic. Yeah, yeah. I think those two examples really show it quite clearly. And your explanation is super clear. So um, maybe we can get you to sort of take off your musicologist hat now and put on your philosopher hat. Because, I mean, what you do in uh, your book, Resilience and Melancholy, pop music, feminism, neoliberalism, is you note how this musical feature of the sore gets deployed in millennial pop music. It seems like it gets paired with certain kinds of lyrical content and certain kinds of identities. Um, and so you sort of you sort of unpack that for the reader and then you have a critique of it. So could you get into that for us? Sure. So you remember how I said the sore is like, um, implying the transgression of the limits of human hearing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what I do in the book, and the, so the titular word resilience yeah. is a word you hear a lot, right? So this idea of overcoming uh, limitations or damage right. or harm uh, to be, you know, stronger than you were before, yeah. right? Or turning a crisis into a resource. So uh, what I argue in the book is that the sore is sort of a sonic representation of this logic of resilience, right? It sort of creates this tension and then implies this sonic transgression or damage that then becomes the sort of, right, it's not actually harmful, but aesthetically what it gives you is a sort of an increased or augmented pleasure on the experience of the next downbeat. Right. right. So so that's the it, it's representing in music the the sort of experience that resilience is supposedly or in theory supposed to be. Right. You turn harm things that damage you into uh, advantages. Right. So in the book, uh, what I do is I note that um, a lot of the discussion of resilience just sort of in general tends to take women and women's experiences of the harms of patriarchy as sort of central examples of mm-hmm. resilience. So, um, and you can see this in a lot of uh, what Sarah Bannett Weiser calls popular feminist discourse, right? This idea that uh, women are capable of sort of individually overcoming the limits that patriarchy or the harms that patriarchy does them right so Mm -hmm. you know you experience sexual harassment at work but you overcome it and you become an entrepreneur and now you're a successful business person right right so this narrative of or you know like perhaps you are a poor girl of color but you study really hard and get into harvard or something right so this narrative of resilience um is really pervasive and um it's often um used as a sort of uh, faux solution for the harms of oppression, right? Right. Um, concrete yeah. jungle, concrete jungle where dreams are made of. There's nothing you can't do. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. kind of weird juxtaposition too. Yeah. yeah. And not quite, but what doesn't kill you makes you dance. Well, yeah. Or I think in the book I call it uh, something like Nietzsche and Kanye's. Yeah. Uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Can we listen to some examples of of this pairing of the sore of this intensification with, you know, lyrical content about resilience? Sure. Um, do you want to do the ludicrous song first? Okay. You kind of have to hear the lyrics because yeah. um, they're all about um, taking risks, okay. right? Risks that could be overwhelming, but doing it anyway and winning, right? So there's this logic of sort of, I'm going to expose myself to all this potential harm, but that's necessary in order for me to live my best life. If you live for something, you're not alone, my friend. So fill up your cup and 
There you go. Should help me live longer. I blow some smoke just to give my lungs a test. Cause why tiptoe through life to arrive safely at death? I'm on a journey, yeah, I'm on a road. Sometimes gotta close my eyes just to open my soul. And tonight is the night I got a feeling that I'm about to act a fool. So if you go fix and drink me and Ursa about to break some rules. Right, so he's talking about all these kinds of transgressions. The fast life. And here comes the sore. There's this really interesting uh, sort of like the American flag and David Guetta appear right at the at the climax of the source. So there's this weird sort right. of gesture towards American nationalism and whiteness as though those are the two things that allow black men talking about risk taking to succeed rather than succumb to those risks. Right. Because we all know that like black men are one of the most criminalized populations in the States and, you know, even doing law abiding things, they get arrested and beaten up and stuff like that. Right. So risk taking is even more risky for them. Right. But here we have this sort of song about risk taking is good. I'm going to expose myself to all this damage. But the thing that insulates me from the negative consequences of that, oh, the American flag and David Guetta. Maybe this would be a good time to dive a little more deeply into your critique here of neoliberalism, um, because I, I want to draw out why it would be advantageous to sort of um, represent people of color and women as taking these chances and overcoming things like that, that I think, uh, you know, people might be surprised to hear that a feminist philosopher um, is actually rather critical of these kinds of representations that it might it might seem like that would be something that you would celebrate so could you talk a little bit about that sure so overcoming the harms of oppression is something that oppressed people have had to do for centuries but what's different now and what's different with, with resilience discourse is that it like all aspects of neoliberalism it privatizes it right it makes um, individuals responsible for um, fixing systemic issues but it also sort of takes the fixing or uh, healing that one might need to do uh, in response to the harms of oppression and basically co-ops it for those mechanisms of oppression so that the healing process doesn't actually fix anything it just feeds the oppression and, and contributes to it right if that makes sense so so if if old school capitalism was you know you work for the same employer your whole lifetime and um you're a company man uh man intended there right like yeah. it was definitely hierarchical and patriarchal and racist <laughs> right yeah. But it did also have its kind of uh, uh, a certain kind of safety to it, which, um, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia for now um, among people like Donald Trump. Um, neoliberal capitalism offers a whole lot more under the guise of freedom. It takes away the social safety net. It says anybody is can come in. Women are invited. Minorities are invited. In fact, you're required to come in and work because the social safety net has been removed. Lifetime employment is gone because uh, you know life has become liquid and corporations uh, are allowed to fire you when they want. The gig so economy. It, yeah, we, we enter the mm -hmm. gig economy. And so you are required to be resilient no matter who you are. You need to overcome right. all of these mm -hmm. things that this intensification of capitalism and this deregulation of markets um, 
have thrown our way. Is, is that a fair way to sort of characterize what you're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, of course, uh, the sort of lower social status you have or the lower you are on the privilege hierarchy, the more stuff you have to overcome. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. And so maybe um, I, one thing that I really like about what you do in your book is you really integrate because there are a lot of critiques of neoliberalism out there but not all of them focus on the roles of race and gender the way you do neoliberalism is all about efficiency right it tries to achieve the goals of old school capitalism and classical liberalism uh with at le less of a cost right so um you could police the purity of identity categories and that's sort of what um, you know, the one drop rule would be an example of, right? We're policing the purity of whiteness, but yeah. that takes a lot of resources to do, right? You have to work very hard at that, be vigilant about it. So uh, one of the ways that neoliberalism upgrades old school forms of sexism and racism and all the other isms is by basically deregulating those boundaries Right. So we're not going to police the boundaries of purity. We are going to instead demand mixing. Right. But we're going to do this in a field where the background conditions are rigged so that even though we're sort of not policing boundaries, it will be more or less impossible for the individuals that have been traditionally excluded to succeed. My God. So I'm, you know, I'm reminded of a lyric from the early hip hop days from last night, a DJ saved my life. There ain't a thing could, that I can't fix because I can put it in the mix. Yeah, yeah. And um, Lester Spence actually has a couple of books that talk about um, sort of hip hop cultures, uh, adoption of the rhetoric of neoliberalism. Right. So, right. Um, you know, he talks about how, you know, we've got the, the figure of the, the hustler is sort of a, a, a black version of the neoliberal entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so the, the sore is kind of an example of how this resistance and resilience get co-opted um, or this kind of message of, of resistance. Right. Like uh, mm -hmm. this would have been a transgressive message at, at some point in time. And, and um and yet it's able to get sort of sort of appropriated by the system that it was resisting. Mm -hmm. And yet for the individual who is enjoying this music, it's still sort of like equipment for living, so to speak. Right. Like that experience of listening to that kind of music, dancing to the sore, feeling that intensification. Um, to my mind, and maybe this is my chance to nitpick, but it goes beyond representation, right? It's not just representing uh, this this kind of uh, neoliberal capitalism, but it's but it's it's doing it to the body, right? Your body, your mm -hmm. nervous system is is experiencing this, um, and then coming out of the other side of it, feeling invigorated and feeling stronger. And in that way, it's like the kind of thing that helps people move through their lives right so I, I i feel like there's something really interesting happening here where from the subjective position of the individual this music is helping people get through their day or get through their week they can't wait for the weekend to come and dance to this music and yet it can still be supportive of the system that's making their life such a travail to begin with yeah and i think that's just popular music in the 20th and 21st century, <laughs> you know, um, and I, I don't, and you know, like commercial music is inherently part of this exploitative system. Um, and I think you could even go all the way back and say things like, well, racism and sexism have been baked into our aesthetic norms since we've had the idea of race or gender. Yeah. So there's never going to be this sort of, unproblematic artwork that we can experience. So the fact that there's this dynamic where on the one hand, these songs are literally sort of, you could either say they're kind of training us 
in the experience of resilience or they make sense to us and we like them because we've already been so inculcated in this ideology yeah. that that we want our leisure time activities to also take the same shape that we have to uh, form our lives into in our in sort of work in work right um, but I think um, you know, I mean I like those songs yeah yeah <laughs> um, I think they're fun songs and I think the thing about art in its sort of interpretive and I think more importantly in its sort of social context it can be more than what it is as a commodity or just as an object right that's um, that's the awesome thing about art, right? By like by by listening to this music or dancing to it together, or by talking about it, we're uh, sort of participating in social relations that have the potential to not be uh, as uh, messed up or oppressive as the sorts of logics perhaps encoded in some of the some of the songs. If that makes any sense at all, right? Like, yeah, it's the the making and sharing and being together that the artworks foster that I think is the really, um, uh, I don't necessarily, that's, that's the work of freedom, right? If you want to put it that way, right? Like that's the cool thing about art that I think lets it work for social justice. Uh, what Victor Turner called communitas. Yeah. And, and there are though some examples that you give of, types of musical forms that maybe provide that sort of being together yet also maybe throw a little sand into the gears of neoliberal mm -hmm. capitalism instead of greasing the wheels. Could, could you maybe talk about an, an example of that? Sure. So this would be the, the sort of other word in the title, melancholy. Um, so what got me thinking about this was people's reaction to, uh, Rihanna's response to Chris Brown after he assaulted her, right? So her unapologetic album came out and she did a duet with him. Um, and people were furious because that was not the proper sort of quote unquote feminist response, right? She didn't disavow him. She didn't perform the overcoming, right? Like, oh, I was, I was assaulted. I reject my assault, the person who assaulted me. I have overcome the damage. I am a quote unquote feminist now. Um, so initially I saw the sort of rejection of resilience in just in Rihanna's own behavior, but then I, I, I listened to the album and, um, what you can hear on the album are structures that, um, gesture towards the sore, but don't do the work that they do, right? They don't sort of build this climax, right? So in a way, the, in the same way that Rihanna didn't sort of perform resilience for the pleasure of her fans. Uh, the songs don't perform sores for aesthetic pleasure, if that makes sense. Yeah, maybe can we listen to an example sure. of that? Sure. Did you want to do Diamonds? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's listen to Diamonds by Rihanna. I think it's important to note that the lyrics are all about shining like diamonds, right? So this is on the one hand about uh, sort of celebrating strength and, and beauty and things, but um, it doesn't sound like a celebratory song. Shine bright like a diamond Shine bright like a diamond
coming up to the where the source should be. We're beautiful like diamonds in the sky. I too I so alive. We're beautiful like diamonds in the sky. Shine bright like a diamond. Shine bright like a diamond. Shine bright. So this is where the shore the source should be. got the the repetitions in the lyrics yeah but it doesn't go anywhere right, so we're back at, at, at another verse um, so, but in some ways it was happening in the keyboards and the strings the keyboards went from being these more statuesque chords that we're hearing right now mm -hmm. into doubling and then we had strings doing staccato intervals built off the, the doubling of the keyboards. Yeah, but there was never the... It's like not it happening sort of started, in the drum. Yeah, it's sort of gestured there, but there yeah. wasn't the... Right, there was some doubling, but then it didn't quadruple. We're in there now, yeah. Or tuple. So yeah, that's what I mean. It's gesturing towards this, but not completing it. But also we've got this, uh, this other thing that you've talked about a lot, which is the, the stuttering or the, the, the sampling of the voice to repeat and to repeat. Um, and I'm thinking about a really old fashioned term like delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, part of pop songwriting now, and this is in part due to st streaming, right? So you have to get people to to listen for more than 30 minutes right um but part of it's <laughs> just due to um other aesthetic factors but um delayed gratification is something um that you don't just it, it it's not important right because that that structure of the, the the discipline in order that you need in order to sort of wait and delay yeah, sort of runs against the the kind of risk taking right. and imperative to transgress that you heard about for example from ludicrous yeah earlier yeah yeah so it's not even like it's trying to delay gratification it's 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 almost more just like saying something like i know what you expect me to do enough to sort of gesture at it but i'm refusing to do the work that you want from me I love right? that I'm, yeah I'm not gonna give you I'm not gonna do the work of uh, performing pleasure for you or generating that that energy for you so it's not just resilience it's resistance but it reads as failure so it is it's it's a refusal refusal right? it's a refusal but it reads as failure um, and the reason why I called it melancholy right. was because, so traditionally, melancholy is the inability to get over something, right? So Freud distinguishes between mourning, which is sort of, uh, you know, uh, getting some resolution after a loss of something. And then melancholy would be the, the failure of mourning, right? Like you never actually uh, come to terms with the loss. <laughs> so if that's what um, melancholy traditionally means, then we can sort of think it as the 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 refusal of resilience, right? It's the failure to overcome sufficiently, right? Or I'm thinking um, about the Jura, the classic Jura image of melancholy, melancholia, that, that sense of dwelling in a refusal to overcome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it, from the perspective of resilience dis discourse, that's what the refusal to overcome looks like. Now, from the perspective of the person doing that refusal it might feel <laughs> fine yeah right it's it just appears from the head to be a failure and a sort of this i don't know what you would call uh misery or a total downer from the perspective of resilience discourse so there's right? a certain so, satisfaction or even arguably a pleasure in dwelling in the resistance to re uh, the dwelling in the refusal to overcome yeah, and it may actually be like a healthy response to trauma. Right. Right, because what I'm arguing is that resilience discourse masks itself as a sort of healthful response to trauma, but what might actually be helpful for individual people 
in various social locations might look entirely different. Right. Right. So doing what you actually need to recuperate from the trauma uh, will appear pathological from the perspective of resilience discourse, but at the sort of level of individual subjects, it'll feel maybe not fine, but at least it'll feel something like uh, some kind of healing or um, uh, resolution or moving on or something. Yeah, like no, that. that's great. So that's a kind of like a different version of what Mac was talking about earlier from a very different direction in terms of an equipment uh, for living. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the things I also thought was important to, to mention in the book is that oftentimes um, people in oppressed groups will perform what could otherwise be considered resilience or overcoming or whatever, but because of their identities, they will be judged as failing at it. Yeah. Right. So in the same way that like criminalization works such that, you know, um, you know, Lisa Cachot in the introduction to her book on criminalization and social deaths contrasts the way uh, white victims of Katrina and black victims of Katrina were described when they went out looking for food. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, one was people were looking for food and the other was uh, looting. Yeah. Right. So there's a similar mm -hmm. dynamic at work with resilience or melancholy. Right. Mm -hmm. The same behavior is going to be differently evaluated or described from the hegemonic perspective, depending upon the identities of who's doing it and and how we perceive those those identities, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I mean, it 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 gives us a way to think about the sort of um, dark melancholy sound that has crept into hip hop over the, oh, yeah. the past decade, you know? Um, whereas Earl Sweatshirt and people like that. Yeah, well, it, and and Kanye's 808s and Heartbreak was kind of considered like a bit of a failure of an album at the time. But gosh, it was like it was a real harbinger of what what was uh, to come. And and also, there seems to be a sort of kind of refusal with sort of so-called mumble rappers to like really <laughs> perform. She said, you're the worst. You're the worst. similar refusal that I see in Rihanna's work where she's like this is for me this isn't necessarily for you at all you know so what's interesting is that those rappers are almost entirely men yeah. yes right and there might be a way to sort of read this as uh, a sort of refusal of resilience as gendered feminine uh -huh. that sort of this idea of resilience has become gendered and racialized as a, a feature of low status groups right so huh. in order to be able to to be the most resilient you have to start at the bottom so i think uh back in 2015 when the book came out um mm. this sort of maximalism was uh gendered masculine right like right. so if you think about um what ludicrous was talking about right you know i'm gonna i think the next verse uh that we didn't listen to he talks about um basically something like if I lose my balance in case I fall, just know it'll be from women, weed and alcohol. Right. So ah. it's this sort of macho transgression. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I mean, we could even go further back because I remember when when I was first teaching university students, dubstep was the province of like nerds, you know, a certain kind of music nerd. Yeah. And then it became like, you know, so-called bro step and it was all the fraternity dudes mm -hmm. with the much more hegemonic uh vision of masculinity dancing through their heads it was really interesting to see that transformation take place so it it's interesting for me to hear that this idea that this kind of intensification has become gendered female mm -hmm. in in these past four years right it's happened like that yeah <laughs> um 
But what you see now, you know, the sad rappers, but you also, even the EDM inflected top 40 stuff um, is much less maximalist, right? We might even call it chill, um, right? That, hmm. So there's been the sort of pivot away from, remember YOLO? You only live once. <laughs> Sadly, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's been a sort of pendulum swing away from that maximalism and towards a more sort of chill, toned down, right? I mean, I mean, Taylor Swift even has a song telling people to calm down in the title. Yeah. You are somebody that I don't know But you're taking shots at me like it's Patron And I'm just like, damn It's 7 a.m. Say it in the street, that's a knockout But you say it in a tweet, that's a cop-out And I'm just like, hey Are you okay? And I ain't trying to mess with your self-expression But I've learned a lesson that's stressing and obsessing About somebody else's no fun And snakes and stones never broke my bones So It's just happened so rapidly, but I think um, I think it definitely has happened to the point that we might even be moving on to something else. I don't yeah. know what yet. I mean, in some senses, that's already that's that's what you're mapping is is beginning to imitate a night out um, <laughs> with with kind of people getting into this kind of sort of you know raging. Uh, ecstatic moments around midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, and then, and then the chill out, the ambient yeah. space. Oh. That yeah, kind. yeah, we're at the after after party. We are. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost time to go to the diner for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe let's talk about chill. I'm trying to think about if there's a musical. Uh, form an analog to the sore that we could talk about because I like how concrete the sore is. Yeah, so it's really present today in just um, toned down sores. Sores are still there, mm. but they're at like two rather than eleven, right? So the build is much more subtle, right? So you'll have that same sort of structure of like there's a little bit of a build and a drop and then the downbeat. Um, so do you want to talk about um, Thank You Next? Sure. The sore is so minuscule. It's like an Ariana Grande size sore. <laughs> There it was. You just had that little sort of swoosh or cymbal roll up, and then there was the downbeat, and it's over. In your work lately, you've moved from identifying sores into identifying this kind of more chill form that is, is dominating pop music right now. Do you want to talk about, like, any analogous changes that you think are going on socially that are making this feel like it makes sense and sounds good, as you put it? Sure, yeah. So um, I think Thank You Next is a really good example of it because it's about Grande sort of overcoming uh, a breakup and learning to love herself. I mean, that's literally the narrative of the lyrics. So it's something we might frame as a kind of resilience but the way it's expressed or represented is totally different than what we got five or 10 years ago, right? right? It's, it's all about sort of her expressing her capacity to, uh, you could, I like to put it as uh, sort of maintain productivity amid 
outrageous circumstances, right? So Chris Richards, the Washington Post um, music critic, talked a few years ago. He had a piece about Is this the um, guy the who popular... hates podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think he wrote a whole column on no. how he hates podcasts. But anyway, go on. Well, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, he had a piece on sort of the popularity of uh, people talking about Xanax and pop music. Yeah. Right. So um, anti-anxiety medicine is really common now for probably good reason. Right. Like, you know, the world seems to be falling apart around us, right. both in literal and figurative ways. So um, <laughs> this idea of, you know, sort of taking anti-anxiety medicine or listening to a chill playlist or being mindful is a way to sort of maintain your productivity and keep on going amid all of this stuff, right? So it's a way to sort of keep people working and distract them and keep them sort of doing what they otherwise should be doing when in fact we should be outraged. Right. At, yeah. At it's all, all this about stuff productivity. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, this, this is what, uh, you know, my recent book is all about using oh, yeah, sound yeah. technologies to be able to concentrate when you need to concentrate and sleep when you need to sleep. So sort of manage your own affect. And, and it's interesting to look at sort of like the ads for noise canceling headphones mm. and the, the beats noise canceling headphones uh, are really aimed at women and people of color and marketed through experiences of racism and sexism. Um, but the message as you've as you said earlier about music it's really about individualizing these problems and giving someone a technology to tune it out right, right exactly the way yeah. you rise above is to not hear the haters <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly uh be resilient overcome overcome it um tune it out yeah so um the effect of this, and you see this in Taylor Swift's new single, right, is that outrage becomes seen as something belonging to people of either low social status or odious political beliefs. Mm. <laughs> right. Rather than something that like, yeah, we should we should be. We should be outraged at the destruction of of the environment. We should be outraged at concentration camps full of children. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so this move to chill, I mean, we see this in the very technology of the streaming platforms, right? Where mm -hmm. the streaming platforms in, are built more around desired moods, affects, type of activity that you're going to do to the music, productivity, uh, working out, than they are organized around genres the way that music stores were, you know, still are. Mm -hmm. The one, those that yeah. exist. <laughs> Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, Liz Pelly gave a really good talk about this at PopCon last year, and I think it was published in The Baffler a few months ago. Uh -huh. um, but she did. She took a deep dive into Spotify as she, she did. That, that's her thing. Um, and she tried listening to sad playlists, right? Playlists about grief, playlists about feeling bad. And she noticed that she was almost immediately redirected to feel good stuff. <laughs> um, and so she looked into uh, the way that Spotify represented itself to advertisers, you know, sort of how it talked about itself to advertisers. And she argues that um, Spotify wants people to feel good when it's listening to Spotify because advertisers want uh, listeners to feel good about the brands advertised on Spotify. Right? I love I so, love this. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. Spotify doesn't want you to feel bad because its advertisers don't want you to associate negative emotions with their their brand. Right. Mm. So Spotify has this own sort of business interest in mood management, user mood management. Um, so if you buy Spotify premium, are you allowed to listen to sad music? <laughs> who knows it's ad free yeah yeah i don't know um maybe that's why uh, youtube keeps trying to get me to take out uh one of their 
their uh, ad-free subscriptions because I never listen to anything uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> you just listen yeah. to dense walls of noise, I Chris. I do. <laughs> I'm interested in listening to steam trains and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> Cars on the freeway. Well, that's interesting because I think one of the sort of places uh, in the pop music world that is definitely unchill these days and it is tied to a progressive politics is industrial techno. Absolutely. All the artists are totally sort of politically engaged, but people like Paula Temple in particular and Perk also, they're both queer artists uh, who have released explicitly political music um, from a progressive perspective. And that I think does express, um, some people like to call it hard or angry music, but um, interestingly, both of them have said, in various ways. I don't think my music is angry. I think it's joyous. <laughs> but again, I think it's an example of just strong emotion, which chill, like I said earlier, codes as either pathological or politically regressive. So I think it's interesting to look for places where where sort of sonic maximalism and the strong emotions it implies are explicitly associated with with a progressive politics, and that's that's one place I think um, you can find it. And I've been calling it uh, at one point I called it angry melancholy, but then I found the the interviews where the artists were like, "It's not angry." So I'm uh-huh. <laughs> I'm trying to find an uh, an adjective <laughs> to describe what kind of melancholy it is because it's not the sort of meh melancholy that I talked about in the book, but it's it's melancholy in that it's a similar sort of failure to perform. Uh, the required uh, affective attunement, right? Which in this case would be something like chill. Uh, Cameron on a guillotine. Was that in- yeah. Was that inspired by the Black Mirror episode with the pig? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> so it's definitely about uh, Brexit. Yeah. Um, I actually first heard the song on um, a Rinse FM show the day after the Brexit vote. So it's it's sort of circulating as an anti-Brexit song. Um, Um, Let's listen to a moment of that. I mean, this sounds so retro to me. Yeah. Me too. It makes me nostalgic. But it's kind of itchy and frenetic. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so to me, that sort of represents like, you know, like when I'm uh, tapping my toe and I just, you know, I, I'm full of energy and I can't calm down and I'm nervous about something, right? That's, uh-huh. that's very unchill. Yeah, it's definitely not chill. <laughs> <laughs> great uh, do we have anything else that we should uh discuss like any any things that we haven't covered so what's the next book about uh it's called the sonic episteme and it's about um how theorists pop science writers use concepts of sound to create uh qualitative versions of the relationships that neoliberalism creates quantitatively I love so that. like um one of the things I talk about is how uh, pop science writers uh, use uh, the idea of resonance to translate the probabilistic math behind either um, some kinds of data science or some kinds of string theory into terms that lay people can understand. That sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah, and that's out, that's out in December. Is there something that you wanted to talk about that we haven't touched yeah, on? Yeah, no, I think we covered it. <laughs> Okay. Thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure to chat. Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you for for talking with us. Um, This one will be, it'll be really interesting to edit 
Um, <laughs> Max going to be spending the next four months <laughs> making it into a two-minute piece. <laughs> Hopefully not two minutes. But uh, <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for this episode of Phantom Power. Thanks to Robin James for being on the show. You can learn more about Phantom Power, find transcripts and links to the things we talked about, and previous episodes of the show, all at phantompod.org. You can also subscribe to our show there or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you'd rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Today's show was edited by Mac Haygood. Our intern is Gina Morovich. Phantom Power is produced with support from the Robert H. and Nancy J. Blaney Endowment, the Miami University Humanities Center, and the National Endowment for the Humanities.